Book One, Chapter Four of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book One, Chapter Four. Before, however, we go on to chronicle the ultimate success or failure of Mrs. Thornburg as a matchmaker, it may be well to inquire a little more closely into the antecedents of the man who had suddenly roused so much activity in her contriving mind. And, indeed, these antecedents are important to us. For the interest of an uncomplicated story will entirely depend upon the clearness with which the reader may have grasped the general outlines of a quick soul's development. And this development had already made considerable progress before Mrs. Thornburg set eyes upon her husband's cousin, Robert Ellesmere. Robert Ellesmere, then, was well born and fairly well provided with this world's goods. Up to a certain moderate point, indeed, a favourite of fortune in all respects. His father belonged to the younger line of an old Sussex family, and owed his pleasant country living to the family instincts of his uncle, Sir William Ellesmere, in whom Whig doctrines and conservative traditions were pretty evenly mixed, with a result of the usual respectable and inconspicuous kind. His virtues had descended mostly to his daughters, while all his various weaknesses and fatuities had blossomed into vices in the person of his eldest son and heir, the Sir Mowbray Ellesmere of Mrs. Seaton's early recollections. Edward Ellesmere, rector of Muirwell in Surrey, and father of Robert, had died before his uncle and patron, and his widow and son had been left to face the world together. Sir William Ellesmere and his nephew's wife had not much in common, and rarely concerned themselves with each other. Mrs. Ellesmere was an Irish woman by birth, with irregular Irish ways, and a passion for strange garments, which made her the dread of the conventional English squire, and after she left the vicarage with her son, she and her husband's uncle met no more. But when he died, it was found that the old man's sense of kinship, acting blindly and irrationally, but with a slow inevitableness and certainty, had stirred in him at the last in behalf of his great-nephew. He left him a money legacy, the interest of which was to be administered by his mother to his majority, and in a letter addressed to his heir he directed that, should the boy on attaining manhood show any disposition to enter the church, all possible steps would be taken to endow him with the family living of Muirwell, which had been his father's, and which at the time of the old baronet's death was occupied by another connection of the family, already well stricken in years. Mowbray Ellesmere had been hardly on speaking terms with his cousin Edward, and was neither amiable nor generous, but his father knew that the tenacious Ellesmere instinct was to be depended on for the fulfilment of his wishes. And so it proved. No sooner was his father dead than Sir Murbury curtly communicated his instructions to Mrs. Ellesmere, then living at the town of Harden for the sake of the great public school recently transported there. She was to inform him, when the right moment arrived, if it was the boy's wish to enter the church, and meanwhile he referred her to his lawyers for particulars of such immediate benefits as were secured to her under the late baronet's will. At the moment when Sir Mowbray's letter reached her, Mrs. Ellesmere was playing a leading part in the small society to which circumstances had consigned her. She was the personal friend of half the masters and their wives, and of at least a quarter of the school, while in the little town which stretched up the hill covered by the new school buildings, she was the helper, gossip, and confidant of half the parish. Her vast hats, strange in fashion and inordinate in brim, her shawls of many colours, hitched now to this side, now to that, her swaying gait and looped-up skirts, her spectacles, and the dangling parcels in which her soul delighted, 
were the outward signs of a personality familiar to all. For under those checked shawls which few women passed without an inward marvel, there beat one of the warmest hearts that ever animated mortal clay, and the prematurely wrinkled face, with its small quick eyes and shrewd indulgent mouth, bespoke a nature as responsive as it was vigorous. Their owner was constantly in the public eye. Her house, during the hours at any rate in which her boy was at school, was little else than a halting-place between two journeys. Visits to the poor, long watches by the sick, committees, in which her racy breadth of character gave her always an important place, discussions with the vicar, arguments with the curate, a chat with this person and a walk with that, these were the incidents and occupations which filled her day. Life was delightful to her. Action, energy, influence were delightful to her. She could only breathe freely in the very thick of the stirring, many-coloured tumult of existence. Whether it was a pauper in the workhouse, or boys from the school, or a girl caught in the tangle of a love affair, it was all the same to Mrs. Ellesmere. Everything moved her, everything appealed to her. Her life was a perpetual giving forth, and such was the inherent nobility and soundness of the nature, that, in spite of her curious Irish fondness for the vehement romantic sides of experience, she did little harm and much good. Her tongue might be over-ready, and her championships indiscreet, but her hands were helpful, and her heart was true. There was something contagious in her enjoyment of life, and with all her strong religious faith, the thought of death, of any final pause and silence in the whir of the great social machine, was to her a thought of greater chill and horror than to many a less brave and spiritual soul. Till her boy was twelve years old, however, she had lived for him first and foremost. She had taught him, played with him, learnt with him, communicating to him through all his lessons her own fire and eagerness, to a degree which every now and then taxed the physical powers of the child. Whenever the signs of strain appeared, however, the mother would be overtaken by a fit of repentant watchfulness, and for days together Robert would find her the most fascinating playmate, storyteller, and romp, and forget all his precocious interest in history or vulgar fractions. In after years, when Robert looked back upon his childhood, he was often reminded of the stories of Goethe's bringing up. He could recall exactly the same scenes as Goethe describes, mother and child sitting together in the gloaming, the mother's dark eyes dancing with fun or kindling with dramatic fire, as she carried an imaginary hero or heroine through a series of the raciest adventures. The child, all eagerness and sympathy, now clapping his little hands at the fall of the giant or the defeat of the sorcerer, and now arguing and suggesting in ways which gave perpetually fresh stimulus to the mother's inventiveness. He could see her dressing up with him on wet days, reciting King Henry to his Prince Hal, or Prospero to his Ariel, or simply giving free vent to her own exuberant Irish fun, till both he and she would sink exhausted into each other's arms, and end the evening with a long croon, sitting curled up together in a big armchair in front of the fire. He could see himself as a child of many crazies, eager for poetry one week, for natural history the next, now spending all his spare time in strumming, now in drawing, and now forgetting everything but the delights of tree-climbing and bird-nesting. And through it all he had the quick memory of his mother's companionship. He could recall her rueful looks whenever the eager, inaccurate ways, in which he reflected certain irreradicable tendencies of her own, had lost him a school advantage. He could remember her exhortations, with a dash in them of humorous self-reproach, which made them so stirring to the child's affection. And he could realise their own far-off life at Muirwell, the joys and the worries of it, 
and see her now gossiping with the village folk, now wearing herself impetuously to death in their service, and now roaming with him over the Surrey heaths in search of all the dirty, delectable things in which a boy naturalist delights. And through it all he was conscious of the same vivid, energetic creature, disposing with some difficulty and fracas of its own excess of nervous life. To return, however, to this same critical moment of Sir Mowbray's offer. Robert at the time was a boy of sixteen, doing very well at school, a favourite both with boys and masters. But as to whether his development would lead him in the direction of taking orders, his mother had not the slightest idea. She was not herself very much tempted by the prospect. There were recollections connected with Muirwell, and with the long death in life which her husband had passed through there, which were deeply painful to her. And moreover, her sympathy with the clergy as a class was by no means strong. Her experience had not been large, but the feeling based on it promised to have all the tenacity of a favourite prejudice. Fortune had handed over the parish of Harden to a ritualist vicar. Mrs. Ellesmere's inherent evangelicalism—she came from an Ulster county—rebelled against his doctrine, but the man himself was too lovable to be disliked. Mrs. Ellesmere knew a hero when she saw him, and in his own narrow way the small-headed, emaciated vicar was a hero, and he and Mrs. Ellesmere had soon tasted each other's quality and formed a curious alliance, founded on true similarity in difference. But the criticism thus warded off the vicar expended itself with all the more force on his subordinates. The hardened curates were the chief crook in Mrs. Ellesmere's otherwise tolerable lot. Her parish activities brought her across them perpetually, and she could not away with them. Their cassocks, their pretensions, their stupidities roused the Irishwoman's sense of humour at every turn. The individuals came and went, but the type, it seemed to her, was always the same and she made their peculiarities the basis of a pessimist theory as to the future of the English church, which was a source of constant amusement to the very broad-minded young men who filled up the school staff. She, so ready in general to see all the world's good points, was almost blind when it was a curate's virtues which were in question. So that, in spite of all her persistent church-going, and her love of church performances as an essential part of the busy human spectacle, Mrs. Ellesmere had no yearning for a clerical son. The little accidents of a personal experience had led to wide generalizations, as is the way with us mortals, and the position of the young parson in these days of increased parsonic pretensions was, to Mrs. Ellesmere, a position in which there was an inherent risk of absurdity. She wished her son to impose upon her when it came to his taking any serious step in life. She asked for nothing better, indeed, than to be able, when the time came, to bow the motherly knee to him in homage and she felt a little dread lest, in her flat moments, a clerical son might sometimes rouse in her that sharp sense of the ludicrous which is the enemy of all happy illusions. Still, of course, the Ellesmere proposal was one to be seriously considered in its due time and place. Mrs. Ellesmere only reflected that it would certainly be better to say nothing of it to Robert until he should be at college. His impressionable temperament, and the power he had occasionally shown of absorbing himself on a subject till it produced in him a fit of intense, continuous brooding, unfavourable to health and nervous energy, all warned her not to supply him, at a period of rapid mental and bodily growth, with any fresh stimulus to the sense of responsibility. As a boy he had always shown himself religiously susceptible to a certain extent, and his mother's religious likes and dislikes 
had invariably found in him a blind and chivalrous support. He was content to be with her, to worship with her, and to feel that no reluctance or resistance divided his heart from hers. But there had been nothing specially noteworthy or precocious about his religious development, and at sixteen or seventeen, in spite of his affectionate compliance, and his natural reverence for all persons and beliefs in authority, his mother was perfectly aware that many other things in his life were more real to him than religion. And on this point, at any rate, she was certainly not the person to force him. He was such a schoolboy as a discerning master delights in, keen about everything, bright, docile, popular, excellent at games. He was in the sixth, moreover, as soon as his age allowed, that is to say, as soon as he was sixteen, and his pride in everything connected with the great body in which he had already a marked and important place was unbounded. Very early in his school career the literary instincts, which had always been present in him, and which his mother had largely helped to develop by her own restless imaginative ways of approaching life and the world, made themselves felt with considerable force. Some time before his cousin's letter arrived, he had been taken with a craze for English poetry, and, but for the corrective influence of a favourite tutor, would probably have thrown himself into it with the same exclusive passion as he had shown for subject after subject in his eager, ebullient childhood. His mother found him at thirteen, inditing a letter on the subject of the Fairy Queen to a school friend, in which, with a sincerity which made her forgive the pomposity, he remarked, "'I can truly say with Pope that this great work has afforded me extraordinary pleasure.' At about the same time, a master who was much interested in the boy's prospects of getting the school prize for Latin verse, a subject for which he had always shown a special aptitude, asked him anxiously, after an Easter holiday, what he had been reading. The boy ran his hands through his hair, and still keeping his finger between the leaves, shut a book before him from which he had been learning by heart, and which was, alas, neither Ovid nor Virgil. "'I've just finished Belial,' he said with a sigh of satisfaction, "'and begin beginning—' "'And I'm beginning Beelzebub.' A craze of this kind was naturally followed by a feverish period of juvenile authorship, when the house was littered over with stanzas from the opening canto of a great poem on Columbus, or with moral essays in the manner of Pope, castigating the vices of the time, with an energy which sorely tried the gravity of the mother whenever she was called upon, as she invariably was, to play audience to the young poet. At the same time the classics absorbed in reality their full share of this fast-developing power. Virgil and Aeschylus appealed to the same fibres, the same susceptibilities, as Milton and Shakespeare, and the boy's quick imaginative sense appropriated Greek and Latin life with the same ease which it showed in possessing itself of that bygone English life whence sprung the Canterbury Tales, or As You Like It. So that his tutor, who was much attached to him, and who made it one of his main objects in life to keep the boy's aspiring nose to the grindstone of grammatical minutiae, began about the time of Sir Mowbray's letter to prophesy very smooth things indeed to his mother as to his future success at college, the possibility of his getting the famous St. Anselm scholarship, and so on. Evidently such a youth was not likely to depend for the attainment of a foothold in life on a piece of family privilege. The world was all before him where to choose, Mrs. Elsmere thought proudly to herself, as her mother's fancy wandered rashly through the coming years. And for many reasons she secretly allowed herself to hope that he would find for himself some other post of ministry in a very various world than the vicarage of Muirwell. Chapter 
So, she wrote a civil letter of acknowledgment, Sir Sir Mowbray, informing him that the intentions of his great-uncle should be communicated to the boy when he should be of fit age to consider them, and that meanwhile she was obliged to him for pointing out the procedure by which she might lay hands on the legacy bequeathed to her in trust for her son, the income of which would now be doubly welcome in view of his college expenses. There the matter rested, and Mrs. Ellesmere, during the two years which followed, thought little more about it. She became more and more absorbed in her boy's immediate prospects, in the care of his health, which was uneven and tried somewhat by the strain of preparation for an attempt on the St. Anselm's scholarship, and in the demands which his ardent nature, oppressed with the weight of its own aspirations, was constantly making upon her support and sympathy. At last, the moment so long expected arrived. Mrs. Ellesmere and her son left Harden amid a chorus of good wishes, and settled themselves early in November in Oxford lodgings. Robert was to have a few days' complete holiday before the examination, and he and his mother spent it in exploring the beautiful old town, now shrouded in the pensive glooms of still grey autumn weather. There was no sun to light up the misty reaches of the river. The trees in the broad walk were almost bare. The Virginian creeper no longer shone in patches of delicate crimson on the college walls. The gardens were damp and forsaken. But to Mrs. Ellesmere and Robert the place needed neither sun nor summer, for beauty's heightening. On both of them it laid its old irresistible spell, the sentiment haunting its quadrangles, its libraries, and its dim melodious chapels, stole into the lad's heart, and alternately soothed and stimulated that keen individual consciousness which naturally accompanies the first entrance into manhood. Here, on this soil, steeped in memories, his problems, his struggles, were to be fought out in their turn. "'Take up thy manhood,' said the inward voice, "'and show what is in thee. The hour and the opportunity have come.' And to this thrill of vague expectation, this young sense of an expanding world, something of pathos and of sacredness was added by the dumb influences of the old streets and weather-beaten stones. How tenacious they were of the past! The dreaming city seemed to be still brooding in the autumn calm over the long succession of her sons. The continuity, the complexity of human experience, the unremitting effort of the race, the stream of purpose running through it all. These were the kind of thoughts which, in more or less inchoate and fragmentary shape, pervaded the boy's sensitive mind as he rambled with his mother from college to college. Mrs. Ellesmere, too, was fascinated by Oxford. But for all her eager interest, the historic beauty of the place aroused in her an undermood of melancholy, just as it did in Robert. Both had the impressionable Celtic temperament, and both felt that a critical moment was upon them, and that the Oxford air was charged with fate for each of them. For the first time in their lives they were to be parted. The mother's long guardianship was coming to an end. Had she loved him enough? Had she so far fulfilled the trust her dead husband had imposed upon her? Would her boy love her in the new life as he had loved her in the old? And could her poor craving heart bear to see him absorbed by fresh interests and passions, in which her share could be only, at the best, secondary and indirect. One day, it was the afternoon preceding the examination, she gave hurried, half-laughing utterance to some of these misgivings of hers. They were walking down the lime-walk of Trinity Gardens. Beneath their feet a yellow, fresh-strewn carpet of leaves, 
brown interlacing branches overhead, and a red misty sun shining through the trunks. Robert understood his mother perfectly, and the way she had of hiding a storm of feeling under these tremulous comedy airs. So that, instead of laughing too, he took her hand, and there being no spectators anywhere to be seen in the damp November garden, he raised it to his lips with a few broken words of affection and gratitude, which very nearly overcame the self-command of both of them. She dashed wildly into another subject, and then suddenly it occurred to her impulsive mind that the moment had come to make him acquainted with those dying intentions of his great-uncle, which we have already described. The diversion was a welcome one, and the duty seemed clear. So, accordingly, she made him give her all his attention while she told him the story and the terms of Sir Mowbray's letter, forcing herself the while to keep her own opinions and predilections as much as possible out of sight. Robert listened with interest and astonishment, the sense of a new-found manhood waxing once more strong within him, as his mind admitted the strange picture of himself occupying the place which had been his father's, master of the house and the parish he had wandered over with childish steps, clinging to the finger or the coat of the tall, stooping figure which occupied the dim background of his recollections. "'Poor mother,' he said thoughtfully, when she paused, "'it would be hard upon you to go back to Muirwell.' "'Oh, you mustn't think of me when the time comes,' said Mrs. Ellesmere, sighing. "'I shall be a tiresome old woman, and you will be a young man wanting a wife. There, put it out of your head, Robert. I thought I'd better tell you, for, after all, the fact may concern your Oxford life. But you've got a long time yet before you need begin to worry about it.' The boy drew himself up to his full height, and tossed his tumbling reddish hair back from his eyes. He was nearly six feet already, with a long, thin body and head, which amply justified his school nickname of the Darning Needle. "'Don't you trouble either, mother,' he said, with a tone of decision. "'I don't feel as if I should ever take orders.' Mrs. Ellesmere was old enough to know what importance to attach to the trenchancy of eighteen, but still the words were pleasant to her. The next day Robert went up for examination, and after three days of hard work and phases of alternate hope and depression, in which mother and son excited one another to no useful purpose, there came the anxious crowding round the college gate in the November twilight, and the sudden flight of dispersing messengers bearing the news over Oxford. The scholarship had been won by a precocious Etonian with an extraordinary talent for Stearns, and all that appertained thereto, but the exhibition fell to Robert and mother and son were well content. The boy was eager to come into residence at once, though he would matriculate too late to keep the term. The college authorities were willing, and on the Saturday following the announcement of his success he was matriculated, saw the provost, and was informed that rooms would be found for him without delay. His mother and he gaily climbed innumerable stairs to inspect the garrets of which he was soon to take proud possession sallying forth from them only to enjoy an agitated, delightful afternoon among the shops. Expenditure, always charming, becomes under these circumstances a sacred and pontifical act. Never had Mrs. Ellsbury bought a teapot for herself with half the fervour which she now threw into the purchase of Robert's, and the young man, accustomed to a rather bare home and an Irish lack of the little elegances of life, was overwhelmed when his mother actually dragged him into a print-seller's and added an engraving or two to the enticing miscellaneous mass of which he was already a master. 
they only just left themselves time to rush back to their lodgings and dress for the solemn function of a dinner with the provost. The dinner, however, was a great success. The short, shy manner of their white-haired host thawed under the influence of Mrs. Ellesmere's racy, unaffected ways, and it was not long before everybody in the room had more or less made friends with her, and forgiven her her marvellous drab poplin, adorned with fresh pink ruchings for the occasion. As for the provost, Mrs. Ellsworth had been told that he was a person of whom she must inevitably stand in awe. But all her life long she had been like the youth in the fairy tale, who desired to learn how to shiver and could not attain unto it. Fate had denied her the capacity of standing in awe of anybody, and she rushed at her host as a new type, delighting in the thrill which she felt creeping over her, when she found herself on the arm of one who had been the rallying point of a hundred struggles, and a centre of influence over thousands of English lives. And then followed the proud moment when Robert, in his exhibitioner's gown, took her to the service in the chapel on Sunday. The scores of young faces, the full unison of the hymns, and finally the provost's sermon, with its strange brusqueries and simplicities of manner and phrase, simplicities so suggestive, so full of a rich and yet disciplined experience, that they haunted her mind for weeks afterwards, completed the general impression made upon her by the Oxford life. She came out tremulous and shaken, leaning on her son's arm. She, too, like the generations before her, had launched her venture into the deep. Her boy was putting out from her into the ocean. Henceforth she could but watch him from the shore. Brought into contact with this imposing university organisation, with all its suggestions of virile energies and functions, the mother suddenly felt herself insignificant and forsaken. He had been her all, her own, and now, on this training-ground of English youth, it seemed to her that the great human society had claimed him from her. End of Book One Chapter Four